news drives markets. And every day, Montel's experienced reporters are on top of the stories that shape European market developments. Can you afford to miss out? Go to montelnews.com for the latest price-driving stories and a free trial. Hello listeners, and welcome to the Montel Weekly Podcast. Bring energy matters in an informal setting. In this week's pod, we look ahead to Monday's general election in Norway and the implications both for the oil and gas-rich Nordic country, as well as what it might mean as a potential blueprint for countries looking to wean themselves off a dependency on fossil fuels. Joining me, Richard Sverison, is Dick Scholset of Oslo-based Zero, an environmental NGO. A warm welcome to you, Stig. Thank you and good morning. We're going to focus mainly, or in the first part anyway, talking about uh, the Norwegian election. Now, current polls indicate that the centre-right government will be replaced by a centre-left coalition after eight years in office. Now, what's your verdict of their eight years in office? <laughs> well, that's a tough one. I think uh, looking at what they've done on climate, we still have these extremely stubborn emissions in Norway. So it's been hard for any government to actually reduce emissions in Norway. And this has also been the case with this government. So if you look at, you know, are we actually reducing emissions, the verdict would be pretty harsh. If you look at what they've done to build sort of a greener economy, it's much better. I think we have now gone a long way to establish carbon capture and storage in Norway, a full infrastructure for that, which is probably the first country in the world to do it in a proper way. And we're also moving ahead on issues like uh, hydrogen production of batteries and also offshore wind. So I would say it's a pretty mixed picture. But you say they haven't really succeeded in bringing emissions down. What's at the core there? What's the, the reason behind that? We have this major oil and gas sector, right, where emissions have been quite stable or even, I mean, if you look over the last 10, 15 years, it's been going up quite steadily. If you look at the transport sector, Emissions are actually coming down now, mainly because Norway has this pretty good policy for electric vehicles. So essentially, we're subsidizing electric wheels, electric vehicles to the point where it becomes profitable at the point of purchase. So that is now starting to kick in. I think we have about 10% of the, of the fleet uh, now being electric. And obviously, you see that on the transport emissions. So transport is coming down. Otherwise, it's it's quite flat. And in, in terms of, I mean, oh, it mustn't be forgotten, I think, of what's happening internally to, to domestic emissions, but also, I mean, Norway is a massive oil and gas exporter. So a lot of these, these fossil fuels are being exported and emissions to other countries. Oh, yeah, for sure. If you include sort of the emissions we export, you, you would, uh, I think you have a, a tenfold increase of the, of the Norwegian emissions. So that's, um, if you include what we refer to as scope three, sort of uh, the emissions we export, uh, the, the impact is obviously much, much greater. I mean, we'll come back to that a little bit, I think, Stig, but let's, let's go on to, so what's coming next? I mean, if you get a left-leaning government coalition of the parties on the sort of centre-left, if that comes into, into government, what do you think will change? It's not a huge difference, I would say, if we have a central right or central left government. You might say that sort of the ambitions on, on reducing emissions would be slightly higher if we have a change of government. 
But then again, you both see the the current government and and a new one would have to probably would need support from more would you say climate skeptic parties or not climate skeptic in the traditional sense, but you know skeptic would more reluctant to a much tougher climate policy than we have today. I don't see a huge change immediately, and that's the same for the regime around the oil and gas production. It's basically pretty much the same if you look at what's going on in the campaign at the moment. As far as I can tell, I mean, I'm, I, I live in Oslo, I can see that the climate issue has come to the forefront among certain, certain types of voters. So how do the parties compare here? Well, you're definitely right. I mean, I think climate started out as a bit a bit on the back burner in the campaign that, you know, before summer. But then we have the, the IPCC report coming out. So when the campaign picked up again after the summer break, together with a lot of climate coverage in the news, right, with with fires and floodings and heat waves across the world. So it was sort of a perfect climate storm when the campaign started again after after the summer break. And it's been... I think throughout the last few weeks, the the most important issue, and you've seen an, a number of of different parties sort of changing gears in the way they talk about climate during the campaign, and you also see, you know, among the voters that uh, the parties that are we that are typically seen as as climate and environment parties have really increased over the campaign. So it's definitely, I think, the most important issue now over the over the last few weeks. Where are the main sort of sticking points? I mean, I'm thinking here about oil and gas exploration and the rollout of offshore and onshore wind, hydrogen or, or even electric vehicles. Where, where do the parties stand here? Is there, is there a clear kind of dividing line? Well, you have a dividing line between what we see as the climate-friendly parties. So it would typically be the Greens, the Liberals, sort of the socialist left party. And I think the difference is is most obvious when you talk about the, the future of the oil and gas industry, right? So they want to have a pretty immediate stop on, on exploration, maybe even a end date for, for production on the Norwegian shelf. So So that's the most important dividing line, I would say. When you talk about sort of building the new industries, everyone agrees that we should have battery factories, we should have hydrogen, we should have offshore wind. But, you know, take offshore wind as an example. Even though all parties in principle are in favor of it, you see some parties opposing to build cables that would actually, that we would need, right, to link up with the continent to export part of that energy, because that's in the end what will make those projects profitable. And there you see a clear divide between some parties being born as more, in a sense, nationalistic and saying that, you know, we shouldn't produce renewable energy here just to export it to Europe. So, so there are some key dividing lines also in terms of like, like building the new green industries that, that we need in the future. We've seen in, in the Nordic region and elsewhere, I mean, very, very high power prices at the moment. Ha- has that affected the, the election campaign at all? It hasn't really been picked up, I would say. Maybe you would expect it, at least I would expect it to be more a controversial topic because that's normally what happens when you have power prices at, at these levels. I mean, it has been one element in the discussion around, you know, how do we build the, the new industry or the, you know, the the battery production, the hydrogen and the rest of it that will that we need in the future. And of course, one of the 
key advantages in Norway is that we we have 100% renewable energy already. And compared to the rest of Europe, we also have relatively low energy prices. So that's been definitely a competitive advantage. And and to build the new industries, some parties are really putting a lot of emphasis on that we have to we have to still keep that in Norway. So that's mainly, I think, where it has popped up so far. And do you think it's made the public high power prices, that is? Do you think they've made the public more positive to onshore wind? Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> Not yet. I think no, we're definitely no. pausing that debate for at the moment. And I think you will likely stay that like that for um, for still some time. So... No, it's not coming back. I think we need to see a, some different projects. So far, we've essentially been trying to build onshore wind where the wind resources are the best. And that's typically also in areas with more pristine nature. The conflict has been, has been quite intense. So I think we need to rethink a bit and look at more, you know, which areas, on which areas is it accept, acceptable to build wind uh, and and try to identify those. It could be like close to existing industry or other existing infrastructure. So even if, you know, wind resources are maybe just 80% as good as on the coast, that's where it will be publicly acceptable, I think. So we're still waiting to to restart that debate. You mentioned the old industry and you also talked about noise, almost 100% renewable in terms of electricity. So in some sense, it's it's best in class. Yet there's a big contradiction. It's one of the world's biggest exporter of fossil fuels. There's still some form of coal production going on, isn't there, on, on Svalbard? I'm just thinking there's huge amounts of revenues coming in into the Norwegian treasury as a result of selling fossil fuels. How do you start and accelerate the energy transition here to sort of wean the country off fossil fuels, Dick? Well, I think there you are at the core of the Norwegian debate. Well, to start with the broad picture, I think most political parties realize that we are approaching the end of the oil and gas era, and it will play a smaller role of the, in the Norwegian economy over the next decades. We will transition away, you know, either because the oil is, no, the, the world is, will succeed in the climate and energy policy and, and there will be less demand for fossil fuels or production is decreasing anyway. And at some point, it will be a moral question whether you, you start or you continue to, to export oil and gas in a world where we already found more than we need. And I think, say, say a, a, a third of the political landscape already see this as a political issue so or a moral issue. So, you know, even if the world needs tobacco or chemical weapons, right, we won't supply it because it's simply not right. And a good chunk of the population and a, at least some of the political parties, I think, see the oil and gas exploration in the same way. But, you know, this discussion will continue for quite some time. You have to build the new industries and at the same time have a reasonable time scale for how you how you reduce the production that is the political balance that we're trying to get right at the moment of course maybe the uh, the norwegian sovereign oil fund also helps potentially that's definitely a good point right because we have we have moved sort of we have um, converted the fossil resources in the ground to financial resources on the world's exchanges right so in a sense norway is already much less exposed to a transition away from oil and gas than, you know, say 10 years ago. 
So we have this enormous financial buffer against, well, that, you know, both against uh, sort of an economic, economic dip when we have less income from, from the oil and gas, but also we are less exposed in a sense because we have the sovereign wealth fund. So I think there are so many scenarios where this can be done in a good way. We already have, you know, 100,000 less people employed in the oil and gas industry than we had less than 10 years ago. So this transition is is already happening, but I think myself and, and a lot of people with me would like to see it happening much faster. But what's the alternative, Stig? I mean, you talked about some new industries. Is it, I mean, is it instead of exporting gas to Europe, for example, you export electricity? Is it building up battery factories? Where is the alternative? I think if, if you look at a lot of the things that we know we need in a green future, and that would be, as you say, battery factories, a lot of renewable energy. It is hydrogen, probably more bioenergy than we have today. I think in, in, in all of those areas, Norway is extremely well positioned to play a huge role. If you look at our immediate markets, that is Europe, right? Most of Norwegian oil and almost all of Norwegian gas is being exported to Europe. And if you take sort of the, the, the fit for 55 and the, and the green deal at face value, Europe will be transitioning away from oil and gas extremely fast over the next, even the next decade. And, you know, before 50, oil and gas should essentially be, be phased out, which means that the market for the current market for Norwegian export of fossil energy will disappear. Europe will be will need a lot more uh, renewable energy, hydrogen, and I think you know it's it's quite obvious that when the markets that we export to are changing in the speed that we see and expect for the next years, of course uh, Norway has to has to really speed up the the transition to a greener economy. And where does this place you know the oil and gas majors such as Equinor, Shell, BP, but Equinor is if we're talking in the Norwegian context. Is it going to be able to rapidly change into a, a renewables company? I mean, it's still the vast majority of its revenues come from oil and gas. True. I think, you know, it depends, <laughs> it depends on how you compare Equinor, right? If you compare them to other oil and gas majors, I think they're really, you know, in the forefront in their transition, right? They're moving money, they're moving people to the green projects. So it's definitely a serious transition that's going on. But of course, as long as you have high oil and gas prices, the revenue stream will continue to, to be there. It will be the, definitely the most profitable part of their business for, for many years to come if we see oil and gas prices at these levels. So it makes it hard, you know, by definition, to stop doing something that is extremely profitable. And, you know, it's, it's a debate, right? Should you split the company in two, single out? Should you have more of an exit and harvest strategy than they have at the moment? You know, I think it's, it's really hard to tell, right? I think companies will choose different strategies and we'll see that over the next few years. But in general, if you compare to other oil and gas majors, Equinor is, I think, in a very decent place. But then again, we're not sure if it will be those companies that will actually, will, you know, to what extent will be able to keep their position in a new energy world, that remains to be seen. They've certainly made inroads both in acquisitions in the renewable sector, as have other big oil and gas majors. So as you say, the, the change is happening. It'd be interesting to see how quick that process is. Definitely. And I, I, it's interesting to compare a bit with the majors in the power sector in Europe. 
if you go 10 years back, we had Vattenfall, Eon, EMBW, quite a few really, really big companies. And even if they could see the renewable energy revolution, I would say, coming, they didn't change fast enough, right? They lost, you know, more or less half of their market value in just a few years' time because they had an extremely profitable business model based on nuclear energy, oil and gas, and not oil and gas, but gas and coal, you know, based load power production based on that. And it changed faster than they thought. And they lost a good chunk of their market value in very short, you know, over very just a few years. So it's not always the incumbents in the sector that are <laughs> the best to, or, I mean, it's, it's always hard for incumbents to see the change and coming and, and how fast it will be. And, you know, I think now the, the oil and gas majors are a bit in the same situation. Be interesting to see how this develops over the, the coming years. Stig, another interesting area that I'd like to, to bring up is the electrification of oil and gas platforms in, in, in Norway in particular. Critics say it's expensive and, and only moves emissions abroad. What do you think? Well, I think we have to reduce all emissions from all sources. And the energy on the electricity on the, on the platforms, I mean, it's essentially gas turbines, inefficient gas turbines that's producing that electricity. And I think climate policy in a way is extremely simple. You have to get rid of all fossil fuel energy use, right? And even if it's used to produce more fossil fuels, it's still fossil fuel energy use. So in my head, this is quite simple. We have to electrify. It's a way, I mean, we know those platforms will be there for 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 many years, for decades. For Norway, this is a huge, a good chunk of our domestic emissions. And, you know, to meet our obligations under the Paris Agreement, to be a serious country as part of the global efforts to bring emissions down, we have to do our part, which means we have to reduce emissions in all sectors in Norway, also oil and gas production. And I think the other argument would make sense, you know, if you want to shut down everything within the next year, 10 years, you don't do expensive electrification, that's for sure. But if you sort of take the point that these oil and gas installations will be with us for at least 10, 15, maybe even 20 years and and 30 years, then we have to produce as efficient as possible. So that's why, you know, Zero and and, and others with us conclude that this is is actually something which is which is reasonable to do, uh, of course, up to a certain point. We have to do it to make the analysis case by case to some extent. But but in general, yes, we have to reduce all emissions. What would you say to the countries that are at a similar crossroads? I mean, maybe Norway's a few steps ahead, as you mentioned, in terms of EVs and renewables development in the country. But countries, you know, in the Middle East or Latin America who find themselves, you know, very dependent on fossil fuels. What would you say to them, uh, given what you've learned from, from the Norwegian experience? Well, yes, I think if you, if you look at a few of, of the, the countries you mentioned or, the, you know, the big uh, oil and gas producers today, they also have good resources of renewable energy, right? They probably produce some of the cheapest uh, sun in the world. And, you know, the transition will happen, right? I think they are to increasing increasing extent aware of uh, the transition risk and the climate risk. So what can you say? Those countries will struggle in the future if they don't start the transition. And I think at least some of them are starting to realize that. And they have, in many cases, favorable conditions for, for building the new industries as well. 
This is a transition that all countries have to do. Either they will be forced to do it or they can, can start the process themselves. Of course, it's a very big challenge when you have in some countries, you know, that dependent on the oil price being at a certain level to balance their books. And, it, and it's very hard to cut off that sort of revenue stream, isn't it? Um... The Kodak moment has been referred to so many times, right? Mm -hmm. If you have a business model that's profitable, it is so hard to change. And we see that over and over in so many different sectors and industries. And the oil and gas industry will definitely have their Kodak moments. And a lot of countries and companies will be caught on the wrong foot. I think that is that is quite obvious. And and this is happening in all the industries. The, the, the incumbents with the most profitable business models, it's, it's really hard to change. But change will come. On that note, Stig, on that very optimistic note, um, it'll be interesting to, to see what happens on Sunday and what the next four years uh, will bring in Norway. But thank you very much for explaining the ins and outs of, of Norwegian domestic politics and also giving us more of a, a global view. Thank you once again, Stig. Thank you. So listeners, you can now follow the podcast on our own Twitter account, aptly named the Montel Weekly Podcast. Please direct message any suggestions questions or you know let us know if you if you think you have a good idea for a guest on the show you can also send us an email to podcast at montelnews.com lastly remember to keep up to date with all that's happening in energy markets on montel news you can subscribe on apple podcasts and spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from thank you and goodbye <laughs>